Hello, I'm Tristan Miller, and this is Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality of arts and mental health. Today's guest is writer and comedian Hattie Hayes. We have an excellent talk about eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and how to temper all those things through creative endeavors. Because I, I'm mostly of the idea, I think that the work I'm doing externally is what helps heal me internally, if that makes sense. This podcast is brought to you in part by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to support us there. Let's get to the interview. Hi, Hattie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, you're you and I. We know each other, and yes. the way we, the way we know each other is we did a show together because you do comedy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I do do that. We've also done karaoke together, but that is not. I feel like I feel like we met through shows, but we know each other through karaoke. That yes, that is. I That's would agree. Accurate, I yeah, think. absolutely. I think. You absolutely get to know someone intimately, personally, and emotionally through karaoke. Um, how did you start doing comedy? Um, or, more importantly, why did you start doing comedy? Because um, I don't shut up. Okay. And so I needed somewhere to put it. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I started doing comedy. Uh, the long story, very short, is I wanted to be a doctor, and then I did mm-hmm. sketch comedy in high school, and I was like, Mom, I don't think I want to be a doctor. Will you be upset was if she? I want to be something else? And she's like, no, you could tap dance professionally, and I'd be proud of you. And I'm like, Ooh. well, it's close. <laughs> it is close to that. I'm um, like, I wanted to do comedy. I wanted to do sketch comedy. I wanted to do musical comedy. And she's like, well, there's really not a degree in that. Um, mm-hmm. So you're going to have to go to college for something. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, journalism it is. Um, so that's what I went to school for. And then mm-hmm. I started doing stand-up when I lived in Arizona just because it was – um, a very easy entryway into comedy. Um, mm-hmm. I actually don't like stand-up. I actually don't want to do stand-up anymore. Really? Except for Lady Killers, which is um, the show that I run uh, once a month. That's an all-women show. Yeah. And that's more out of a, a sense of obligation to my species. But, um, sure. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to do more sketch comedy and more musical comedy. I work with um, I, I, our friend Patrick Riley, who I think you know on, on musical comedy or musical theater Mayhem. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a musical show that he and I do. Mm-hmm. And I, I also do some shows that are a little bit out of the box, like uh, Quip It Good, which yeah. is mostly just banter. Yes, it is mostly banter, I hardly know her. Yeah. Now, uh, why why the switch? Um, it was never really a switch. It was mostly that stand-up was convenient when I lived in Phoenix. Okay. Um, the landscape of comedy in Phoenix and such is such that if you're not doing stand-up, you are not – it's prohibitive. It's prohibitive. Um mm-hmm. So I, I also, um, I don't know if Matt talked about this or not, but he and I met um, yeah. when we were hosting a variety show together. Yeah. Um, and that provided me a lot of connections uh, outside of stand-up and, and mm-hmm. into sketch. But um, really the, the way to kind of network in Phoenix comedy is to be a multi-hyphenate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that stand-up kind of has to be your first one. Yeah. And then I, I've only been in New York um, a year and some change, a year mm-hmm. and a couple of months. So being in stand-up was a really great way to network, especially because... Um, I had come out to New York for um, a festival before mm-hmm. I moved here, um, the Cinder Block Festival, mm-hmm. and then I also did it um, a month after I moved here. Mm-hmm. And so having having that stand up background, it's 
it's there's such a low barrier to entry. You don't have to write sketches with anyone. You don't have to rehearse. You don't have to try and get together four people who will do improv with you. You don't have mm-hmm. to rely on anyone else. Stand-up just has a low barrier to entry. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> exactly. it does. Yeah. Which means that it's also kind of hard to get out of. Yeah. Because... It's so... It's right there. It's right there. You know, yeah. you're not going to say no. You're yeah. not going to say no to exposure until you're like, I'm going to start saying no to this. <laughs> um, it's like the Hamilton song, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But with less sex no actually with the same amount of sex but more guilt more <laughs> guilt how does that work you yeah. cheated on your wife <laughs> she's saying like four songs about you alice what the hell um uh. <laughs> yes so uh so if i asked you to do stand-up right now you would say no i don't do that anymore i do it but i glare at you okay the whole time okay um so i'm working on some other projects right now some that are secret-ish and some that are not mm-hmm. secret-ish and i'm also Writing some sketches. Mm-hmm. I am slowly writing um, a musical, a co- comedic, comedic musical. Mm-hmm. Um, comedic. Comedic. Uh, <laughs> Which is all I was about... going to say comedy musical. It's about Amy Adams. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Okay, that's fun. So there is that. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to get that mounted in the spring. but um, And I've... not sued <laughs> shortly after. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. If she sues me, I can take it. You can take it? I can you take do it. know a very good lawyer. Yes. Um, so, okay, okay. So, why comedy specifically, though? Like, why didn't you turn to, like, dramatic acting if you just wanted to talk? Um, uh... What is it about comedy? I am funny. Yes, I know that. uh, That's mostly it. I think it's, um, that's mostly it. I am funny. Um... Hear me roar. roar. Uh, I didn't necessarily, I didn't have an outlet growing up for, like, dramatic acting. Um, Sure. Rural Missouri, not really, um... A strong drama program at my high really? school. Really? Where in Missouri? Uh, Grain Valley, Grain which is Valley? Um, about 45 minutes outside of Kansas City. I got a question for you. Do you mm-hmm. think when the town was founded, they were they were getting grain from the valley? Um, it's actually a uh, misnomer, um, and I think it was originally named. Uh, I'm fairly certain it was originally supposed to be Green Valley, uh. and then there was something similarly named nearby. I might be wrong. Uh, I read or the, the person had a very thick accent. Yes, they could have. This it is, is the Grand Valley. This is the Grand uh, Dinka Dinka Durgan. Yeah. Yep. Um, but okay, not a lot of dramatic outlets. Yeah, there. not a, a lot of dramatic outlets. Um, it just didn't feel like... It's, again, the barrier to entry thing is a lot mm-hmm. easier to be funny, um, I think, for me, maybe, than to be dramatic. Uh, okay. And, and a lot. I think it's a lot easier to tap yeah. into the emotions that you have when you're doing comedic acting and then leave them for the rest of your, you know, to go do your yeah. other life stuff than it is to be really heavily invested in a dramatic character or a serious storyline. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something in writing, too, that I think is, is tough because I think it's hard to do really serious dramatic writing mm-hmm. um, and still feel like you can function. At least that's been my experience um, with short stories and, and things that I've written of that nature. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of all-consuming. And, and not to say that comedy writing is easy, but it's definitely not as emotionally um, restrictive. Yeah, because the goal is to get the laugh, and right. then if it gets the laugh, then, then it works, and it doesn't, as opposed to, you want, if dramatic writing, you want some sort of, like, evocative emotion right. sense of things, like, that goal is, like, ugh. Like, yeah. And then you came out here. Yeah. Yes. And now you're back in journalism. Yeah, well, I never left journalism. You never um, left. I worked all throughout college, mm-hmm. um, and I just... Um, for the last year, I've worked as an editor at Meredith Magazines. Oh. Um, and, you know, that encompassed uh, 
Martha Stewart, Parents, Health Magazine, uh, Family Circle. And and today, um, I actually started a new job, and mm-hmm. I'm a strategic content reporter for um, Sourcing Journal, which is a fashion industry magazine. So, so, so a business journalist, basically, but in fashion exclusively, which is nice. I like fashion. Mm-hmm. Clearly, yes. very well. She's very very well dressed. I'm in like a kind of slutty. It's really too slutty for my first day of work, and I don't care because um, I need them to know what to expect. Um, it's you said a, the bar barrier here. Yeah, the bar here. Yeah, rather. and then like when I show up in a sweater dress that's too short, they'll be like, "This is very tame." Um, uh-huh. It's a blazer dress. I kind of look like a flight attendant in a Britney Spears music video, which is the ideal look, mm-hmm. truly. Yeah. Um, but you're now now you're writing. Um, so here's something that a lot of people don't tell you. Editors also write. Editors write very heavily. Okay. Um, so in terms of responsibility, it is not a change at all. Well, it's not a huge change. It's mm-hmm. um, I'll do a lot more, I think, assigning and like curatorial work, um, mm-hmm. and have more responsibility, and and be invested in like deep feature pieces, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a. The, the concept of there really being that huge of a distinction between editor and writer is not it's um it's not a it's a fake line really okay um so what does an editor do then so at least in today's publishing world editors a lot of the time um are writing their own stories you know several a day if they're mm-hmm. in a digital platform or several a month if they're in print i was in both at merida so you know that varied. Um, I was also there responsible for like syndicating pieces from our sister brands. So like, you know, if there's something really good on um, Hello Giggles and we want it on the Martha Stewart website, I, you know, we have uh, tools to make that happen. Um, Also, you know, maintaining uh, and building stories on a website, um, doing lots and lots of research for potential stories, pitching stories, Mm -hmm. um, you know, occasionally taking a story that's old and updating it or going through archives to find older stories that we've had in print issues and then updating those. Um, A lot of times taking stories that I've written or other people have written and then developing them as social assets, so like recipes, Mm -hmm. taking and figuring out which recipes from the last five years of issues would work for the next month of content on our Instagram. Um, So it's a lot of different things. And so this role will be more focused specifically on, the one I'm in now, Mm -hmm. will be focused more specifically on like working with brands, so working within like the parameters of what we want our ad sales to be. Sure. Um, which is cool because it, it gives you a lot more of agenda than just kind of wildly pitching, um, <laughs> which is sometimes how it feels when you're working in like a space that's targeted at consumers. Um, but also doing like looking really deeply at like industry reports um, and trend reports and things like that. and. Um, kind of seeing where the next, you know, seeing where what things will look like one or two or even three years down the line um, mm-hmm. in the fashion industry and making those predictions now and then, you know, following up and seeing how they shake out. So you're doing all that and then you're like, I'm going to stay up late and do comedy also. Yes. Okay. <laughs> how, how did you do that? Um, you know, that's a great question. Um, and I want you to remember um, that this is like, like I feel lazy right now uh-huh. because in college I worked full time, I went to school full time, and I did comedy full time. Um, and you know I also still you know flew home frequently to visit my family, which is you know something I do now, but definitely not as frequently as when I was in college. And mm-hmm. also like 
had a social life mm-hmm. and um, I just uh, I take the things that are important and I make room I am mm-hmm. I don't want to say I'm a boundless ball of energy but mm-hmm. um, you know if it's a uh, if it puts my own safety at risk to get everything done okay I'll do it yeah that's fine yeah I can relate to that yeah like, what else am I supposed to do? Not anything? No. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> I can't just not do the things. Yeah, I can't do nothing. It's impossible to do nothing. I'm breathing, therefore I'm doing something. So I, I might as well I also write. Do, I can't do less because less is so close to nothing. Mm-hmm. So, and that's worthless. Then I'll be, I'll be dead eventually. Mm-hmm. And then what will happen? I won't be able to do anything, which will be, that'll suck. Or it won't. I think it'll suck. Okay. Um... So that was all very interesting. <laughs> Am I allowed to just be like, yeah, look, no. all you need to know yeah. is I have a fear of death. Yeah. And that's it. That's where's, what keeps me going. Where's that coming from? Uh, You know how we all die? Yeah, <laughs> but was there like an early exposure no, to death? It's no, just, you're just uh, like just aware a, of it? It's just a compulsive thought. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just always there. Always thinking about it this whole time, yeah. all day long. My new job that I like a lot, mm-hmm. just it's always there. It's not going away. I don't know if this helps you. I don't know if this makes you feel better, but the way I've, I also have that, and the way yeah. I've come yeah. to deal with it is by time is a construct. Therefore, I'm already dead. Therefore, I don't need to worry about it. And therefore, you're also not ever dead. Yeah. It's like nothing's ever not happening besides this moment. Yeah. So what Whatever. does it matter? Yeah. Which is... Oh boy, took me years to get that one. That's but good. um so like growing up there's no weirdness or anything like that? No, well no? I mean not not in that respect. Um I've definitely always been prone to compulsive thoughts of some sort. Yeah. Are you ready for the big eating disorder reveal? Sure. Here it is. <laughs> you got Anorexia There it is. Um no, I think it's it's definitely escalated since I've like sought treatment for my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um so it's like, hey girl, you gotta think about something. And you're uh-huh. training your brain to not always think about not eating. So what mm-hmm. if instead you thought about death? <laughs> it's almost as present in our lives as food is. It's almost <laughs> as ubiquitous. You know your corporeal form? You know how you hate it? Well, why don't you think about it rotting? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, cool, 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 right? And that's uh, real nice of you. I appreciate that. So when did the eating disorder present itself? Um, I think it was like 14 or 15, and it was just... Uh, yeah, it was just uh, like, hey, you're gonna uh, do. It's here's the here's the funny thing about eating disorders in like 2018, and you know, at the time, like you know, 2010. Yeah. Um, it's that the the way that the internet works is that you go online and you look for like diet tips, and then you're looking for more diet tips. And the thing is, if you if you dig deep enough into Google when you're a little girl and you're looking uh, on the internet about how to lose weight, mm-hmm. what you find are pro-eating disorder discussion forums, which are a horrifying thing that are extremely popular to this very day. Um, So it's like, and it's... uh, So people are just like, I love throwing up my food. Yeah, yeah, and people do challenges um, Uh in in forums and message boards to see who can go the longest on a certain diet or without eating at all. And, you know, people do, like, I, I downloaded, like, whatever the, like... 2011 or 2012 equivalent of WhatsApp is Mm -hmm. and you know we had like a group chat where it was you know we were all talking about like our calorie counts and like we would you know do accountability stuff and Mm -hmm. um, and that's the kind of thing where you you don't really realize you know that it's happening until like you realize that it's gotten really bad and like Mm -hmm. you don't realize like oh I have a I have a problem I have like a a mental disorder it's Mm -hmm. like no like this is a diet for him you know Mm -hmm. this is a true like there are 
like very serious forum topic threads that are about eating paper instead of food, but you know, it's it's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like such a slow, you ease your way. It's the way that any like radical community on the internet works, right? Because like yeah. it's, it's very much like the red cell uh, or red pill, like incel community happens. You know, mm-hmm. you don't realize you're being radicalized, and that's very much what what it is. Um, yeah. is that it's a it's a radical behavior that stems from you know existing mental illness mm-hmm. um which for me was undiagnosed depression mm-hmm. um i wanted to say that like a sexy hotel commercial yeah sure but uh <laughs> yeah so that it, it was just like a like when you have that tendency towards yeah. compulsive thought and then mm-hmm. one makes itself readily available and then shows up in your you know google ads mm-hmm. <laughs> what you gonna do yeah um what did you do how did you work through that um well i got to college and at that point, I was... So from age 14 to 18, when you go to college, you're just doing this act- actively. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, on and off, you know, there are times when you kind of lapse. Um, people... It's weird, because a lot of the things that you are talking about do sound like sobriety techniques, which is interesting. Yeah, um, and, and there's a whole lot of, like, alcohol stuff tied into eating disorders, too, because, you know, you, you don't eat, so you can you know, spend less money on alcohol and get drunker, mm-hmm. but then also you binge drink so you can throw up. And mm-hmm. um, and so, I mean, those things are very tied together. But when I was in college, it got to the point where it was like, you know, I was fainting multiple times a day. Um, you know, I was at my lowest weight. And it was like, you can either stay in school and eat <laughs> or you can continue to not eat and fail. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at this point, like, I've already gotten a job in school mm-hmm. um, and, you know, in the honors college and I'm, you know, doing the max number of credits a week and like it's, you know, you gotta, I'm, I'm in student government, I'm doing, um, at that point I was hosting the local poetry slam, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm in a lot of activities, it's like you can either eat or you can literally work yourself to death. Those are kind of your options. So um, in my first three months of college, I gained 40 pounds, mm-hmm. which is a lot <laughs> to, sure. in that amount of time. Yeah. And uh, then, um, you know, it kind of it kind of fluctuated on and off until I guess my like end of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year, is when I started seeing a therapist because my friends dragged me. Um, hey, girls, you know who you are. What up? Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just I had to because it was like, you know, you got, you have to tackle it. If it was like if I wanted to move forward, if I wanted to have, I was doing all these things and they weren't bringing me any joy, and it's because I couldn't. They didn't mean anything because I wasn't skinny enough, and that was. You know, just my mindset is like it doesn't matter. Like all these things that I've accomplished, it doesn't matter. Like, like because I'm still fat, um, and that was m- very much my mindset. And it wasn't a thing that was like self pitying or or wrapped in like fishing for compliments. It was like I genuinely believed that me at 142 pounds, five foot seven, was like fat enough that I thought I deserved to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that suicidal ideation came in, that's when it really started to become disruptive to my life. Um, sure. Which is when my friends intervened. <laughs> I'm like. You should see someone. Um, and then I got antidepressants. I was on antidepressants for like eight months. Um, it helped because my, I think that my like compulsive thoughts of death that I have now and have always had just mm-hmm. like escalated into being self-harm thoughts. Sure. Because um, I never like self-harmed in like the traditional like physical injury way. Mm-hmm. I self-harmed through starving myself. Yeah. And then when I wasn't doing that at all, you know, I had the very strong pendulum swing to, well... If you're not going to hurt yourself a little bit, why don't you just kill yourself? Um, and that was constant. And yeah. that was, um, you know, that was like my, <laughs> uh, like the like first, 
like eight months out of like my junior year, I guess, and like into my senior year of college, which at that point I was also traveling a lot for comedy festivals. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, at that point I was with Matt and he and I were traveling together. Um, I was taking two law classes. I was working on my senior thesis. I was still working full time. Um, Mm -hmm. I also had very severe pneumonia at one point. And like all of that just made me be like, you know what? Death sounds real nice. and actually, it's it's interesting because I really have not been, I think I'm probably the only person who's ever moved to New York and, like, not had a suicidal thought since, hmm. right? Because, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm the only person I know who moved to New York and got off their antidepressants, uh-huh. um, which I think is kind of funny. Because yeah. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> Aren't I supposed to be desperately sad? Well, yeah, I guess. Who's to say? Um Okay, so how? So now that you're not you're not on antidepressants now, right. are you seeing a therapist? Are you? Do, how do you work through it? Um, I need to see a therapist. I haven't in a while, mm-hmm. um, and that's partially just uh, laziness, sure. um, which is a symptom of my depression. But we're not going to get into it. Um, no, I've I've actually I have a very very strong network of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends in Phoenix and I actually. We started, we had like an online support group that we started that morphed also into a zine that we published called, um, the zine is called Pity Party. (laughs) Um, And the group um, has like 300 members now. And, um, you Mm -hmm. know, there's the five of us who are like the original members and we're the admins. Um, But that, like cultivating that support network and then expanding it and, and making it something that I contributed to for other people was a really big factor in, yeah. in me feeling like I was able to heal myself. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know, you know, I have, like, a loving family, a loving partner. I have, like, you know, four or five very close friends who I can turn to. But in the case that all of those people fail, um, you know, not that they fail, but if in mm-hmm. some I can't access their help for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I have this network of people who have shown time and time again mm-hmm. that they're good at providing support. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that you know, they value me as their support, as if, like, that symbiotic relationship, um, much like the movie Venom, mm-hmm. uh, the blockbuster hit of 2018. It's uh, It sounds like it's <laughs> sarcastic, but it's not. It's not. Also, I think Venom is canonically gay in that movie, but it's not important, and my mom says he's not. Um, but um, it's it's definitely, like, that, that back and forth gave me, I don't want to say it gave me a sense of purpose, because it didn't. I had a sense of purpose. Um, it, but it, it gave me reassurance that um, I always had, like, a plan Z, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that my plan Z was a very strong plan Z. Yeah. Um, so that felt good. Like, cultivating that wor- network for myself, I think, is a unique thing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not how I think most people deal with their uh, depression. But it, it's how mine shook out, and mm-hmm. it worked well. And I don't mean this as like a slight or a, a dunk in any way, but have you considered all this work that you're doing and just turning it inward and working on yourself as hard as you work on everything else you seem to? Um, I have, and I probably won't. Um, because I, I'm mostly of the idea, I think that the work I'm doing externally is what helps heal me internally, if that makes sense. Okay. So a good example of that is my thesis project in college, which mm-hmm. I really... I started um, at really, like, I think the, one of the lowest points of my depression um, when I was not only mentally very, very severely ill, but also very physically ill. Mm-hmm. Um, I had pneumonia for several months, um, and it was really, I mean, debilitating in a very physical way. 
Um, and that's when I started my thesis project, which is a series of memoirs um, about the women in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like a very like deep and deeply painful at times series of things to write because you know it's 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 five stories essentially and I kind of parsed through some you know other ones that I had thought about and um it talks about my family's history of eating disorders and um you know really really traumatic things that have happened to the other women in my family and the ways that those have impacted me and also moments of great joy with family members that I've lost and and Mm -hmm. it was um Definitely, it was for you know my senior thesis, and I was working with the committee, and it was something that I did lots of writing and revisions on. But um, it, it wasn't; it was an outward look at my family. But really, what it did was it helped me better understand my connections to my family, and it it definitely acted as a salve, I think, for a lot of the blame and the resentment that I felt towards some of the people in my family. And that mm-hmm. was like a resentment that I didn't realize had been building for several years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was only through doing like that very difficult work that I was able to like get that for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like an example of something similar that I'm doing now is I'm I'm working on a writing project that's focusing on um, it's it's a it's a fictional narrative um, about female friendships and about um, specifically like queer coded female friendships and and the way that that line between platonic and romantic love and women's friendships is so mm-hmm. often blurred. Um, yep. And and that's something that it's it's a pain point and it has been a pain point in my life for a long time, but it's been in writing these like fictional vignettes that they're almost like, I don't want to say fan fiction, but there are these <laughs> ideas of... Friend fiction, uh, right? Friend fiction. Yeah. yeah these ideas of um, things that I hope will happen or things that I wish had happened differently or things that happened you know, just the way I wanted them to, and they just have a few tweaks, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's coming together into this into this fictional narrative with characters who are not me, and they're not mm-hmm. based off of me, but uh, it's, it's through exploring that that I've, I've, I've actually healed a lot of pain points with, you know, that in my, in my life, and, sure. um, you know, I had a really bad friend breakup when I left high school, and I think a lot of women know what that feels like, and um, I actually recently reconnected with that person, and that was kind of, it was really... Like, it was a joyful thing, but it was also really, like, emotionally confusing. And, I, I mean, it really impacted me in a way I didn't expect. And that's when I started working on this piece of writing. And I've been working on it kind of mm-hmm. in, in fits and bursts since then. But it's it's definitely, I like, it's very it's very definitely, like, fiction. It's not like an, a writing project for me. It's not like a journal or a diary, which yeah. I do journal and diary. But it's it's not that. It's It's through getting it out and changing it into something for consumption it's what makes me feel um you know it's what helps me process that in myself so Mm -hmm. yeah um okay so i got a couple of questions for you i'm gonna drink some water okay um number one is a rhetorical one but a necessary one to continue you consider you identify as queer Mm -hmm. okay um you're from missouri Mm -hmm. what was that like for you growing up well, nobody knows uh, in my hometown. Okay. Um, Mom and nobody Dad, if you listen to this, knows. nobody knows the pussies I've seen. <laughs> there it is. So sorry. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I. Uh, it was. It was definitely. A, it, it was definitely like something I denied for a long time because I was like, no, I'm just mm-hmm. jealous because other girls are so pretty. I don't mm-hmm. want to kiss them even a little bit. I did. Um, 
Do you think that has to do with the eating disorder? Oh, yeah. Well, it was actually through, like, it was realizing I was bisexual helped me get over my eating disorder. Not mm. get over, but it helped me. Go through. T- yeah, move through it. Because um, I was like, okay, like, I, I realized, like, sometimes I'm going to have to just, like, take these feelings and separate them out from each other because they're rooted in, in the same place and I need to figure them out. But a lot mm-hmm. of... I think it's, like, where a lot of my, like, distrust of other women came from mm. was because, like, I was attracted to them. I was sure. unwilling to admit that to myself. And I was also jealous of them from a place that was rooted in, like, a legitimate mental illness. And, like, mm-hmm. it was hard to, like, get all of that figured out until I was like, hey, girl, maybe you should just go kiss a couple girls and see how <laughs> you feel. Um, so, yeah, so there was that. And that's mm-hmm. something that... Um, you know, it was definitely, it was never like, oh, I had a great revelation. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm queer. It was just like, oh, yeah, 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 that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like, those patterns of behavior, yeah. like, got, it was not, like, a big surprise to yeah. me. I think more and more, I think there's, as speaking for straight people here, I think there's absolutely a narrative that is, okay, you think you're straight and then you realize you're gay. Yeah. And the more people who are queer that I talk to, the more it just seems like it's exact it works the exact same way as any other puberty. Yeah, you're just like this. This is sucks and it's horrible, mm-hmm. but uh, you know whatever. At least I like more porn now. Yeah, <laughs> there seem to be more options yeah, for me. Yeah, it's like now. okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's from my understanding, there's a lot of negative aspects to dating when you're queer, in a, from social pressures and the way some people handle dating in general specifically i guess in new york but since you've moved to new york you've been with matt so that kind of kind of cancels that out i assume to a certain extent but did dating at any point exacerbate any of your um symptoms so um you might have noticed that i present in a very feminine way sure uh, you remember when I talked earlier, my dear readers, about the sexy airplane flight mm-hmm. attendant? Yeah, sexy airplane. That's better, actually. Yeah, but I meant to say airplane. flight attendant, but sexy airplane sounds great. Sexy airplane, it is just the same, except for Leslie Nielsen is completely naked the whole I'm time. I'm fine with this. Yes. Yeah. Um, We're all counting. <laughs> Surely we can't be serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I, I dress in a very feminine way. Yes. Um, I, you know, wear my hair and my makeup pretty much every day in a, mm-hmm. in a very floofy girly way and I don't want to say that that's like a a suit of armor or anything I don't want to mm-hmm. say but it's it's genuinely that a lot of my um, eating disorder symptoms feel from the concept that I feel as though my body is unfeminine hmm. um, which is interesting just based on like my measurements yeah it's like an interesting mm-hmm. concept and like and looking at your face <laughs> <laughs> uh, my face I I, I hate having my photo taken. Really? Um, I, I hate, um, you know, ever, like, I, I have most of my, like, really bad anxiety attacks come from me thinking that I look too manly. Um, and I've well, had anxiety attacks like that at work and other places. And mm-hmm. um, as a queer woman, that's tough because it yeah. makes me feel like it's, it makes me feel, I don't want to say ashamed, but it makes me feel as though by dating other women, mm-hmm. 
I'm emphasizing how masculine I am. Okay. When I don't, I don't feel like I'm masculine, but I feel like I look masculine, and I mm. feel like other people perceive me as masculine, mm. um, and I don't like that because mm. not that there's anything wrong with you guys, but um, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I've, I'm very strongly not a boy. I am yeah. a lady, um, mm-hmm. and I want to feel like I look like a lady, and I just I don't feel I do so much mm-hmm. of the time. It's very, it's very rare that I actually feel pretty, um, mm. and that's something that I haven't gotten over. This I, maybe. Maybe 15 days a year, do I feel pretty? Um, like if I had to like guess, mm-hmm. um, do I like look at myself and think, yeah, I like that. Like most of the time, I'm like, I look like a man. I mm-hmm. need plastic surgery. I need you know to do something about this, and it's torturous, but mm-hmm. it's not as torturous as it was when I was acting on it. And yeah. I think a lot of that just um, and I, and I think that dating as a queer woman is hard because especially because like very feminine women who date women are kind of. Uh, put up as lipstick lesbians, you know, was the mm-hmm. term, and that they're just doing it for attention. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like, am I trying to, like, am I being more masculine if I date women? Am I, like, trying to put on this mask of femininity that's not real and people will see through? So it's it's kind of a constant battle, and it, it changes day to day, but it's always, like, a place of insecurity. Interesting. That actually leads into my next question very well. Of, um, and this is kind of a hacky question at this <laughs> point. But you not only are doing or have done stand-up as a woman but you also present very feminine and you also talk about very feminine traditionally feminine things i should say um like the show i most recently saw you do you talked about like i think a sephora gift card that you got (laughs) what like what is that how have people reacted to that has it been positive negative has no one cared have women liked it and the men gone i don't get it like i i'm just curious for my own edification (laughs) thank you um definitely a lot of men dismiss me and definitely Mm -hmm. some women dismiss me and i think um like i don't think i'm an airhead i think that i'm an intelligent woman who is um educated and Mm -hmm. and fairly like i'm really fairly serious and i think people don't realize that but I also like I have I take a lot of pleasure in like aesthetic frilly things and frivolous things and um kind of light and fluffy things you know and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that um I think that you're you can be a serious person and have a lot of you know a really deep well of emotion to draw from and a lot of very serious deep thoughts about the state of your life and the state of the world and be introspective while also having your entire kitchen be Hello Kitty themed, which mine is. Yeah, Um, so awesome. And and I I think that the response that that gets from people, a lot of people think that I do it to be cute. You know, they think like, and a lot of people think it's a lot more performative than it is. Yeah. Um, But the thing is, it's not like, like as much as I feel, like I definitely dress in a way that I think is feminine because I don't, I feel like I look masculine. Mm-hmm. I think that that stems from like I feel like my body and my face are are masculine and that they aren't feminine enough for my personality, because I do mm. like those the joy that I take in those things, the joy that I take in um, you know beauty and hair and and in glitter and and having a huge My Little Pony collection. All of that joy is legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, like it stems from a really a, like a really true place of love and like it's just what brings me joy and I think it's. I think it's great. I think that's nice that things can just be innocent and nice and pretty for the sake of being pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's. I think that people react to that a lot of the time. They're confused because it, it's 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 like talking in a baby voice to some extent, you know. Sure. Um, or when when women have really high voices or yeah. really strong vocal fry, and a lot of the time that's not. 
you know, it's not her fault. She's not trying to do that. That's just how she is. But mm-hmm. people treat her as though her voice is delegitimized mm-hmm. by the way it sounds, just in the way that I think people treat me as not a real comedian or, um, you know, maybe not a real performer or not as valid because I like to make jokes about Sephora gift cards and being cool at horseback camp. Um, two very feminine things. Yeah. Um, a certain a certain level of income as well involved with that. No. Um, <laughs> I'll say, yeah, and that must be very frustrating for you. And I'm sorry that you have to put up with that because yeah. every experience I've had with you, you've been very funny. Thank you. And I want you to, like, I know there's only a certain level of, like, self, like, most of your validation should come from yourself, but also externally. You are very funny. And uh, fuck those other people. Like, because yeah. they're, that's dumb. Um, another thing is, like, all that sounds very... Like anxiety inducing. Yes. And I know you've talked a lot about your depression, um, but, and you seem to have all this energy. Have you ever tackled any sort of diagnosis of either hyperactivity or anxiety in general? Um, I don't think I have anxiety just because mm-hmm. symptomatically it doesn't present like that. Okay. I do think I might have an attention deficit of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never been diagnosed for that. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that's very much a woman's thing. Like I, like I did not ever think like until, um, like until my friends, like in my, like who are in their later twenties, who are Mm -hmm. female started being like, Oh, I have ADD or I have ADHD. Like Mm -hmm. it never occurred to me that maybe that's something that I also have struggled with. I think that's, that's fairly normal for women. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that, and you know, a lot of women aren't diagnosed with ADD or ADHD until they're older. Um, and I think that's just because in school, um, it's I think it's used to make women and girls um, perform at a different level or at a high, not necessarily a higher level, but at a different level than boys. Sure. Um, I think that boys are more likely to be medicated. Yeah. Um, and I think that girls are more likely to be encouraged to kick their, you know, kick their, themselves into overdrive basically so if they have mm-hmm. a, a you know an attention deficit or an attention disorder of some sort you know either have a hyper focus on something or um you know do traditionally feminine activities alongside that that you know boys aren't necessarily instructed to do um but i also think that it's also just a stigma around mental health where um i think that girls are told to deal with their mental health in a way that is i don't want to say self-destructive but like eating disorders are a great symptom of that Mm -hmm. um because i think a lot of women who struggle with depression and struggle with compulsive thoughts or anxiety um cultivate physical reactions to that um that are you know self-harming either in a traditional way like cutting um or burning themselves or in a way that's um insular like an eating disorder Mm -hmm. um or you know alcoholism is something that is extremely dangerous for girls in high school and early college that they're never told, you know, to deal with because it's, they're never told like, oh, you can be an alcoholic, you know, you're a freshman in college, but you're an alcoholic. It's, you know, the alcoholics are the drunk frat boys who are Mm -hmm. throwing things out the windows. It's never, you know, you're drinking to excess every single weekend and you're passed out all morning Monday. Um, I just Mm -hmm. think that women and men are socialized differently when it comes to mental health. And so... No, I don't think I have an anxiety disorder. I think that I have severe clinical depression. Um, I have compulsive thoughts. I have a history of eating disorders. I might have ADD. We'll see. Um, 
and but that also I think I think the attention deficits that come with depression yeah are also fogginess of yeah the mind. yeah I mean it's it's not necessarily a comorbidity comorbidity it might just be a secondary symptom yeah um, and that's something that doesn't always present yeah um, yeah and I think you touched on something that's very very interesting that like illnesses are coded gender wise like mm-hmm. men have alcoholism and women have eating disorders if right. you're a man who has an eating disorder you're like a pansy or whatever right. word you want to use which is weird to think about and it's weird that like when people think ADHD they do think oh a boy in middle school yeah that's the first thought and I understand why that happened because all the articles came out about boys in middle school yeah and what's been really interesting is in the last few years we've started to look at like how ADHD presents just differently in women mm-hmm. because they're socialized like you were saying I think that's very astute um, pardon me um, and I'll say this and I don't mean to bust your balls uh, metaphorically speaking um, but are compulsive thoughts part of anxiety disorder or do they is that just part of the depression and it's that's also like on me please explain that to me based on what my therapist and I have talked about mm-hmm. is that it's a part of the depression because I use um, like I it's, ba- it's kind of like compartmentalizing mm-hmm. in a sure. way. Um, okay. So like the sense of dread that comes with depression, mm-hmm. like that sense of dread that you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, like I basically, when I really first started experiencing depression, I um, turned it into something compulsive um, okay. with, you know, e- disordered, e- eating mm-hmm. disorder behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, an important thing to keep in mind about eating disorders is how ritualistic they are mm-hmm. because it's very much a, a pattern of mm-hmm. restricting and purging um if you're me you know sometimes there's binging for me there wasn't it was just restricting and purging which is horrible um and you know just like the very ritualistic things around food you know Mm -hmm. you throw away a certain amount of your food or you have to drink a certain amount of water before you're allowed to have food and like it's very ritualistic Mm -hmm. um and you know bulimia is something where a lot of my friends who have bulimia there's like a whole ritual around getting ready to purge and like choosing your safe food that you're going to purge and mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and I think that that ritualistic aspect is what created um, like compulsive thoughts. It it mm-hmm. it kind of coded them into my brain, you know. Okay. And especially in adolescence, when you're developing and and those behaviors that you have in adolescence really yeah. set up a framework for the rest of your life. For me. Um, I, I still crave like that ritualistic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I still crave like, you know, those those reoccurring thoughts about something like food where you have biological indicators that force you to think about it, you know, every mm-hmm. certain number of hours or whatever. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to compulsive thoughts, it's it's a sense of dread that manifests as, you know, okay. compulsive thoughts about death. Um, and and some de- to some degree, those compulsive thoughts act as something trying to make me take action. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the worst parts of my depression, that action that it wanted me to take was to kill myself. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's different from anxiety mm-hmm. because it's not, I'm not saying that all anxiety is debilitating, mm. but for the most part, the way that my depression manifests is that it underlies everything else mm-hmm. and just saps my enjoyment of it. Sure. But it doesn't prevent me from doing it, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, those things are necessarily exclusive of each other. Yeah. But, um, you know, a good example, like public speaking is not something I've ever in my life been nervous about whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, like that sense of nervousness that people have yeah. around public speaking, I've never felt that. Um, there's not a lot that makes me feel nervous, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really get nervousness 
the way that I've heard it described, you know, by my friends with anxiety disorders. What I get is this, like, under an overwhelming sense that lies beneath everything that tells me something is wrong, mm-hmm. that tells me I'm wrong, that tells me, like, in, you know, good times that none of this matters because of how ugly I am. Um, and, like, that's, I think, something that rather than um, preventing me from, like, going out and doing things, like, it doesn't stop me from going out and doing things, but it saps my enjoyment of them. Sure. Um, and I think that's something that's characteristically different between depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it changes the way that you have executive function. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that with depression, that leads to isolation um, in a way that, uh, you know, isolation and um, just, like, a, a not... Like, you're, you're always looking for something to fill the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of unique to depression. Um, yeah. And, you know, your mileage may vary. Yes. Depending on uh, your specific blend of brain chemicals. Yeah. But so it's a maladop- maladaptive coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not just inbred in yeah. your mind and you can't get rid of it. Right. And are you, do you think you're replacing it with work? No. Um, okay. I'm not a workaholic. I'm just very good at my job. Good. Um, I'm glad. And, and that's something that... It's funny because, um, I mean, when I was in college, I never, I never like thought I would be like a real journalist. I was always like, yeah. I'll probably like freelance and do PR or something and like, mm-hmm. you know, fuck around. And um, then I ended up getting a very, very, very good job mm-hmm. right out of college. And then um, I ended up just now getting a better job. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is kind of a surprise. And I just, um, you know, I don't want to say it's like imposter syndrome because I don't think it is. I never like doubted my abilities, but I just, I just thought statistically like it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm happy with it. I definitely like not being in poverty. That's that's <laughs> kind of new for me, um, and I like it. That's like a only the last like year and a half thing. Man, sure. I love not poverty. That's yeah. cool. I, I wish can get I knew used to it. That was that. I would I would say um, you should definitely be proud of yourself. You're right. Statistically, it wasn't likely. Yeah. And it's because your exemplary work that I would assume you were hired. So you should feel good about it. Thank you. I do I do work hard, but never more, not, not enough that it ceases my enjoyment of the things I do. Okay. Um, now, you're a writer. That is that what you would primarily call yourself? I would probably call myself a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. When your depression gets in the way of writing, how do you cope? Um, a lot of times it is taking a very sharp left turn and still writing, having to write, um, actually something that really helps me. So to go, to write, you go left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Three lefts, make a right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sometimes it's just doing something very jarring. Um, so one thing that I write a lot of is parody songs. Um, and you might've, I don't know if I've, I'll say some for you later. Mm -hmm. That's something that is when you're in the depth of a, a very serious piece of writing, that's something that wrenches you way the hell out of yeah, it. Yeah, I'd imagine so. And then on the other hand, um, I also write a lot of very, very gory, very dark, and, and very, um, you know, very involved, like, short, scary stories. Mm-hmm. Um, just, like, things that are very wrought and torturous. and sure. And that's something that kind of pulls me the other direction. When I'm having trouble with focus i found that horror is a really good way to Hmm. get down to a very singular focal point Mm -hmm. by taking a break and and sometimes it's reading horror stories really helps Mm -hmm. actually but a lot of times it's writing them um but i've been known like in the middle of a big project to be like 
cool. My break for t- like my break from this mm-hmm. for tonight is I'm gonna read some scary stories because mm-hmm. it's it's having that singular focus of trying to find you know that sense of terror, that very very specific emotion that someone else has to try and evoke in you when you're reading scary stories. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that's such a specific emotion, and it takes a, a certain number of tools used in a very specific way to make you feel that emotion mm-hmm. like the true terror of a good scary story sure yeah and i think that that really helps my writing because it helps you you, you want to narrow yourself down you want to you want to get to the bottom of the pool so to speak yeah and you you know you're going to weigh yourself down with whatever you have to to do it mm-hmm. what about when you have you have to start a project you're not already started and what you need to start a project and the depression gets in the way um like if you're having a hard time getting out of bed or whatever. That's something where um, you got to guilt yourself a little bit, <laughs> at, at least for me. And it's a lot of times I have to think, you know what? If I don't do this, it will not get done. Yeah. Um, because in a lot of my work positions, I've not been in a place where if I don't do something, I can't hand it off to someone. Yeah. You know, there, I have definitely been in a position to delegate. But traditionally, and this might just be the way that my career has sh- shook out, I am the person who is responsible for the tasks that I have. And if I don't do them, they won't get done. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, there's that sense of, like, I have to do this. Um, Let's see. There's I'm trying to think of, like, a good example of that. Um, There was a story that I worked on a little bit ago um, at my, my previous job. And it was definitely one that I, like... It wasn't interesting to me, and okay. I didn't want to do it. Uh-huh. Um, but like the thing that kind of wrenched me out of that was um, the woman I was working with actually was like a very good mentor to me, and she didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Like she was just like my managing editor. But outside of this project, she did a couple favors for me that like went above and beyond, mm-hmm. um, and things that she didn't have to do, and she did them just to be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of made me think, you know what? She didn't have to do that, but I do have to do this, and I want to do a good job because that's how I thank her. Like, yeah. she only did that because she trusts me to do a good job on this yeah. and because she believes in me, and, and it turned out very well. Um, and I definitely have a couple <laughs> copies of that mm-hmm. um, from the magazine they were in, mm-hmm. and it was not fun. It was not a fun project. It was a huge pain in the ass. I fucking hated it. <laughs> And I did it, and I did a phenomenal job, and she was very pleased. And that's mm-hmm. where, like, it, it came out to, like, a sense of duty to the other people in my life. And that's that's another thing. It's, like, I'm just very, very blessed to be surrounded by people who I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Um, and who, you know, are generally just really salt-of-the-earth people. So. There are very few things that are so satisfying that I've found in my life than not wanting to do a thing, hating to doing, and then accomplishing it perfectly. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I didn't even want to do this, and I did it. And I did great. And I did wonderfully. Mm-hmm. That all makes sense. Well, thank you very much for being on and doing this. Thank you. It's been a treat, and especially after seeing your one-man show. Oh. Um, and, like, crawling around inside your brain for a little while. Yeah. Um, it's nice to open up the door to mine. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But you can try. You can try.